Warning, this week's podcast is family-friendly. Parental or guardianal discretion is always advised. But most children will survive listening to this week's story. You are listening to the Literary Comedy Podcast. Stories of comedy, tragedy, and time. Ing. Hello and welcome to Chapter 9 of A Dragon for George, a friendly for 87% of the family novel about a 12-year-old boy and his pet dragon named Lorne. Last time, George and Lorne the Dragon attempted to save a family from a vicious bear attack only to accidentally ruin the shot of a film, almost burn a guy, and then escape the angry film crew onto the river. And now, Chapter 9 of A Dragon for George. The current slowed down till the river almost felt like a lake. The only burbling George could hear came from his stomach, which hadn't been filled with anything since breakfast of the day before, unless you counted root beer. You should not count root beer. His shoulders ached, still sore from yesterday when they carried the backpack, and now more sore because they had to carry that backpack again. They were even more than more sore from the dragon they'd had to carry, and even more than more sorer from the fact that they had to carry her again, and even more than more than more sorer still by the fact that she had doubled in weight overnight. George hoped that the calm current might embolden Lorne to climb onto the log itself. We'll be on the river a long time, George said. I could train you as we go, Lorne whimpered. It's better than breaking you. That's the term they use for horses sometimes. I prefer training the horses, but train or break, you have to do something with them. You can't have them running wild everywhere, bucking everyone they see. They're big and dangerous animals. George examined the scars on his hand where the reins had torn off the skin. You're growing fast. You're already dangerous, burping fire wherever you see a spark or a flame. We've got to train that out of you. Jump down and we'll get you started. But Lorne refused. She still feared deep waters, and given that she couldn't swim, George couldn't exactly blame her. Okay, fine, George said. We'll wait till we get to shore. But then you're going to learn. If you don't acquire a little self-control before we meet Johnny, things could go awry. George thought up training methods for Lorne to keep his mind off his rumbling stomach. It didn't know where its next meal would come from and barely remembered the last one. George knew how to fish with a line and tackle, but as he didn't have a line and tackle, there was no point dwelling on it. Max had taught him that little brown mushrooms were almost always poisonous. That doesn't mean the other mushrooms aren't poisonous, of course. Max had said. A lot of them could still make you really sick, and some would definitely kill you. So mushrooms were out. The blackberries were still green. The huckleberries were shriveled and gross. George had never been one for hunting. He considered stealing chicken eggs, except that A, a knight should not steal. It was even worse than lying, and B, he didn't know where to find a farm. Once they got to old Newton, maybe they could figure something out, but George didn't know how long that would be, only that the slow current wasn't helping. George paddled with his branch, first to the left, then to the right, as if the log were a very large, unwieldy kayak. 
If he'd managed to increase the log's speed at all, he couldn't tell. So about 20 minutes later, George was happy to feel the current finally speeding up. He was unhappy to see what it was speeding up towards. Giant concrete monoliths. He was even more unhappy when he realized they were part of a very large dam. George reached far into the water, pushing his branch, turning it to the left. The log faced the shore, but the current's speed kept increasing with every second. The log still sped toward the dam, now perpendicular to it. At this angle, the current made the log rock back and forth. George felt himself slipping. He paddled frantically, but this only moved them a few feet closer to shore as the current pushed them a hundred feet closer to death. The log continued to rock. George continued to slip. Lorne squawked, flapping her wings, becoming airborne in the process. Fly to shore, George told her, continuing to slide. His left elbow dipped into the current. Save yourself! He dove into the water, touching the bottom. George stood up, his water-soaked backpack weighing him down. The water only went to his waist. But the stones beneath his feet were smooth. The river pushed hard against him. He slipped. The water took him again. He flailed his hands and feet, trying to grab hold of anything, but he could not keep a grip on the slick stones. His breaststroke got him nowhere. The current was stronger than his swimming. Lorne squawked frantically from the shore. I'm totally fine, George lied. He unsheathed his sword, stabbing it between two stones on the riverbed with all his might. The current still pulled, but George gripped his sword with both hands. He was safe. Depending on your definition of safe. He was still twenty feet from shore. He yanked his sword, but it was firmly lodged into the stone. George lamented that chivalrous people are supposed to pull swords out of stones, not get them stuck. Clearly, he was no King Arthur. George reached down, gripping a stone in front of him. It was a big stone, solid. He lodged his right leg into another stone. I could use climbing rules, he thought, and keep three appendages firmly attached to something solid at all times. It would be slow going, but hopefully relatively safe going, too. But that would mean abandoning the sword Max had given him. One of the last things Max would ever give him. George tried pulling, shaking, and wiggling the sword, but he was unable to dislodge it even slightly. He was, however, able to reopen the cut in his hand that the reins had given him the day before. May whoever finds you again be a better knight than I, George said to his sword, letting go as he grabbed hold of a stone, pulling himself forward. He grabbed another stone farther ahead and then another and another, slowly pulling himself towards shore. But still fifteen feet or so from safety, the stone he grabbed dislodged. George grabbed for another stone, but the current took him. The river washed over him. He sped toward the dam. Lorne flew to him, grabbing his backpack and shoulders. She flapped her wings, but couldn't lift both George and his backpack from the water. Fly back to shore! George said, but Lorne wouldn't let go. She swirled with him toward the dam. You never listen, George said. 
He reached behind his head, fumbling through the top of his backpack for the bridle. You like this, right, girl? Lorne whined in agreement. Take it, said George. Take it and go. Lorne squawked, hissed, and howled at the bridle, but she did not release him. So George unstrapped the backpack, again commanding Lorne to let go. She released the backpack and it sank into the river, caught in an undertow. Oh dear, George said, feeling the undertow's pull. He tried to lodge his legs into the riverbed, but the undertow pulled him beneath the surface, down into deeper waters. He reached back for the surface. He felt wind blowing over his hands. He felt claws sinking into them. Lorne flapped, pulling him above the waters. George gasped for breath. She flapped again, pulling him free of the undertow. But not the surface current. They hurtled toward a boulder near the riverbank. Let go, George said. Let go. Lorne disobeyed sharing in the blow as the two of them hit the boulder. She grabbed hold of the boulder with her front claws, using it to pull herself and George to shore, before finally letting go of him. George finally let out a breath. Lorne licked the water from his face. "'Thanks, girl,' he said, petting her snout. She whined, staring at the bridle in his hand. Now that he was safe, she wanted to breathe fire again." One time, as a reward, George said, pressing the button on the reins. I still need to train you. The bridle didn't spark. George looked at the noseband, soaking wet and partly melted from all the times it had ignited Lorne's burps. Lorne whined. It doesn't work, George said, showing Lorne the lack of sparks. She didn't accept this explanation. George stuffed the bridle under his shirt so she'd stop thinking about it. But she could still see the outline and still whined, though less intently. George turned to watch the swirling currents they'd just escaped. He looked at his sword, its hilt sticking out upstream. He'd lost everything Max had left him. I'm sorry, Max, he said, for not doing more with your gifts. I am not worthy to be your squire. Now what do we have here? Asked a man wearing an orange hard hat. Not a squire, George mumbled. No task squire? Asked the man. Habla inglese, eh? D do you speak English? Yes, George said. What are you doing here with that? The man gestured to Lorne, who hissed back at him showing her tyrannosaur teeth. They primarily serve defensive purposes, George thought, given that she only eats grass. My name is Bob, George started. This is my pet iguana in her hang gliding outfit. We were, uh, extreme sporting. Oh, said the man. This is no place to play. Definitely not, said George whose stomach still churned, but now out of guilt for lying yet again. Hang gliding iguana? If he would ever be a knight, he ought to start telling the truth. And if he wasn't going to be a knight, he ought to start telling better lies. Didn't you see all those warning signs? I didn't, said George, sitting up. 
His head felt both light and heavy. The world faded into white haze. George took a breath, letting the world fade back into focus. I'll level with you. My real name is George. This is Lorne. She's a very gassy dragon who hatched from an egg that I found in a golly, maybe guided by my brother's spirit from beyond the grave. We're trying to avenge his death while avoiding these horsemen who I believe may be from another dimension. No need to lie, said the man in the hard hat. You're not in trouble. I'm worried about your safety is all, and the safety of other children. I work for the dam, you see. We're a government institution, important to the community. But we don't want to be a danger to the community. That's the last thing we'd want. I don't know how you missed the warning buoys and the big red warning signs. I wasn't looking for them, I guess, said George. I didn't even know there was a dam here. Where did you think the power came from? George shrugged. He'd never paid much attention to such things. But from now on, he would most certainly ensure any rivers he floated down contained an utter lack of hydroelectric dams. Your parents must be worried sick, said the man. We should call them so they can come get you. He offered George his hand. Lorne hissed, baring her teeth again. It's all right, George said, petting Lorne's snout to calm her. He's friendly, you goofball. The man pulled George to his feet. George thanked him. Lorne, observing this peaceful exchange, burped emphatically. Do you live in old Newton? George asked, following the man up the river bank. Yes, said the man. I'm a bit late to get home, to tell you the truth. That's where I need to go, said George. This wasn't even a lie. I'd say you should come with me, said the man, taking off his hard hat to wipe some sweat from his balding head. But kids should not take rides from strangers. That's true, said George, thinking that kids also shouldn't fall from cliffs, or sleep outdoors by themselves, or run to ward bears, or aid and abet pyromaniac dragons. Of course, you work for the community, same as the police, and it's okay to take rides from the police, and my parents live close to where you live. This last sentence was only slightly a lie. Old Newton and Dorman's Hollow were only a hundred and thirty kilometers apart. Some places were thousands of kilometers apart. The man in the orange hard hat let out a long and thoughtful sigh. Okay, he said. Did you hear that, Lorne? George asked. This man's going to give us a ride. Lorne grabbed a bit of rain that had emerged from under George's shirt. She yanked the bridle into her own possession. She pressed the button on the reins, but it still wouldn't spark. I'll take that, said George yanking the bridle from her claws. Lorne hissed, but lowered her head, resigned to the fact that she had lost this round. She sure likes her leash, said the man in the hard hat. She sure does, George said, watching Lorne's eyes focused on the bridle as the man walked them into the dam. She's obsessed with it, said the man in the hard hat, as they arrived at the reception desk. I've seen dogs obsessed with balls like that, but never a leash. She's an iguana, George reminded him. Acts like a dog, said the man. What in Sam Hill is that? Asked the bushy-haired receptionist from behind her desk. Your name's Sam? Asked George. 
It's Kenny, said the man in the orange hard hat, who from now on we shall call Kenny. This creature is a dog. An iguana, George reminded him. Doesn't look like a dog or an iguana, said the bushy-haired woman. He's wearing some fancy costume, Kenny said. Looks like a dragon, said the bushy-haired woman. Dragons aren't real, Kenny said. Fancy costumes are. The woman nodded slowly, staring at Lorne suspiciously. Regardless, Kenny continued, these two fools were who I saw on the monitors. I saw them first, said the bushy-haired woman. I'm in a bit of a hurry, and the kid's gonna catch a cold if we don't get him some dry clothes. Do we have any spare uniforms handy? Extra small? The woman provided the necessary clothes, and then buzzed George and Lorne through into a locker room, where Lorne whimpered, focusing on the bridle. No, George said, not for you. But Lorne still whimpered. George would be dead if Lorne obeyed all his commands, but he really thought she should listen to him when it came to fire. No, he repeated, bad. This did nothing to dilute Lorne's obsession. So George stuck the bridle into a spare locker, closing the door. The moment he did this, Lorne started sniffing around the room. Out of sight, out of mind, George thought. In sight, and she had no mind for anything else. George changed into the dark blue uniform that had the words, Old Newton Hydro, prominently displayed on the front. George stuffed his wet clothes into a cloth bag the receptionist had provided, hiding his bridle amongst them so as not to give Lorne any ideas. Kenny walked them to his big white truck, opening the passenger door for George and Lorne. George buckled in. Lorne curled up on his lap. And they must have immediately fallen asleep, because the next thing George knew, he was waking up to a rush of wind blowing into their faces. Sorry, said Kenny, but I absolutely had to open the windows. Your dog sure is gassy. Iguana, George said. What do you feed the thing? She eats grass, mostly. I hate when people do that, said Kenny. No offense to you, you're just a kid, but dogs are meant to eat meat. They're carnivores, and that's that. It's cruel when people try to make them vegetarians. She's an iguana, said George, annoyed that he had to keep repeating this fact, even though it wasn't a fact. She likes grass and won't eat anything else. It's better than starving, Kenny agreed. Upon a sustained burp from Lorne, Kenny added the words, I guess. George could see old Newton in the valley ahead of them. George kept his eyes peeled for high schools, spotting two of them on opposite sides of town. He stared at the city, trying to memorize this image. It would, he knew, be far more difficult to find these high schools from within the city itself. Lorne put her head on the side of the window, letting the air rush past her. You're doing a very good dog impersonation, George whispered to her. What was that? Kenny asked. You don't happen to have anything to eat, said George. I don't think there's much down there, said Kenny, pointing to the old fast food wrappers and napkins at George's feet. We'll be at my place soon enough, though. I'll fix you something there while you call home. George nodded, closing his eyes. Next time he opened them, he heard, We're here. Lorne leapt out the truck's window, grazing the grass that made up Kenny's front lawn. You weren't kidding about her love of grass, said Kenny, stepping out of his truck. Stop that, said George, jumping out of the passenger door. Lorne stopped what she was doing immediately, sitting on her hind haunches. Oh, George said, surprised by this obedience. 
Good girl. George rubbed the back of her neck as she purred, a new sound to add to her repertoire. You've got her well trained, said Kenny. Yes, said George, looking inquisitively at Lorne. Thank you. She's welcome to graze, said Kenny. It's ridiculous for her to do so, of course, but on the other hand, I haven't mowed my lawn in weeks. She might do some good. Thanks, George said. Good to know. Kenny opened the front door to a house filled with balloons, streamers, and screaming children. Bright, cardboard letters spelled out, Happy Birthday. Obviously, this meant that George had walked into a birthday party. Birthday party meant birthday cake. Birthday cake meant birthday candles. Birthday candles meant, We have to leave, George said. Right now! Thank you for listening to Chapter 9 of A Dragon for George. If you liked the show, as always, please like, rate, review, subscribe, and listen again next week. Until then, bless you, keep you, and take good care.